The purpose of this activity is to expand the reach of chest content through awareness, critique, and discussion. All articles have undergone peer review for methodological rigor and audience relevance. Any views asserted are those of the speakers and are not endorsed by chest. Listeners should be aware that speakers' opinions may vary and are advised to read the full corresponding journal articles for complete context. This content should not be used as a basis for medical advice or treatment, nor should it substitute the judgment used by clinicians in the practice of evidence-based medicine. Hello and welcome to the Chess Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Dominique Pepper. On behalf of CHEST, I'd like to welcome you to this month's CHEST podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and I'm the moderator of the CHEST podcast section. Thank you all for joining us today for what will be a really interesting conversation, endobronchial ultrasound transbronchial needle aspiration. Today, we're very fortunate to have Drs. Ramatowski and Dr. Tremblay as our guests, and we'll be discussing their article published in CHEST entitled, Endobronchial Ultrasound Transbronchial Needle Aspiration with 19-gauge versus 21-gauge and 22-gauge needles for sarcoidosis, lymphoma, and mediastinal lymphadenopathy not yet diagnosed. So why don't you go ahead and get our guests to introduce themselves. Um, Dr. Ramatowski? Hi, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, so um, my name is Nick Romatowski, and I work at the Peter Lougheed Hospital in uh, Calgary. And um, I completed an interventional pulmonology fellowship in 2019 um, at the Foothills Hospital, also in Calgary. Absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast with us, Nick. And Dr. Tremblay? Yes, well, I'm uh, also a respirologist in Calgary. I've been doing uh, interventional pulmonary medicine for the past uh, 20 plus years uh, in Calgary. And um, yeah, it's uh, been great to have uh, people like Nick come through our, our, our fellowship program and do, do obviously the clinical work and, and, and also some of the research uh, that we've come out with. So uh, I'm pleased to be here to present some of that. Great. So let's go ahead and get started with um, uh, the podcast. Um, Dr. Tremblay, maybe you could tell us why did you perform the study? Why did you look at the different uh, needle sizes um, when uh, doing biopsies with for sarcoidosis, lymphoma, and mediastinal adenopathy? Yes, well, I, I've had some, uh, some opportunities over the past uh, years to... Uh, to help with the different aspects of the development development of this 19 gauge device, uh, uh, work, working with industry, um, including in the lab initially and in animal in vitro model in, in ex vivo and in vivo models, uh, and eventually in patients. So it's it's been kind of a, an aspect of uh, of EBUS uh, bronchoscopy that I've been quite uh, interested in, um, and um, you know we were quite pleased when when these these uh, different products start hitting the market. But as as the case is, as as you know, many times some of these um, equipment um, uh, advances that come out onto mark onto market don't have a whole lot of clinical uh, evidence behind them. So I think it's quite important to uh, for for people in academic centers to, to to study these things as we roll them out. Um, so this was certainly one of those instances where we had this needle. Um, yeah, we liked using it, uh, but we didn't quite always know when when we should be using it and we didn't think it was all the time because standard ebus works quite well um but we want to know is there a certain area of our practice where where the, these needles would would show advantages 
And Dr. Tremblay, maybe for our audience who aren't familiar with these different needles, what would be the, um, the supposed benefits or disadvantages of using a 19-gauge needle versus a 21- or 22-gauge needle? Right. So, I mean, the, 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 the main thing is that presumably you're getting more tissue in a bigger biopsy. Really, that's, that's the sense of it. And um, when you st- we started thinking about where, where that might be helpful, um, we started thinking about areas of, uh, of EBUS where, where results are, might, might be good, but not perfect. And, you know, sarcoidosis and lymphoma were two of those areas. So that, that's why we focused on, on these in, in this study. Um, in terms of disadvantages, there's some technical uh, issues with them. They're, they're a little bit more finicky to, to use, and we can talk about that a bit later, maybe some of the tips about how to use them. Um, and then there's a cost to them. They, they are uh, more expensive than the standard needle. So uh, for us, just going straight to, um, to using this, this needle exclusively didn't make a lot of sense either. And then whenever we speak to the pathologist, they always tell us tissue is the issue, and the more tissue, the better. Um, and you raised the question that uh, sometimes there are disadvantages with getting more sample. You may get more sample, more blood, but not more tissue. Um, how would that affect your uh, biopsy results? Right. I think I think you know the, the, there's some good in in uh, in, in in vivo uh, data um, um, that uh, I participated in that that clearly shows that you get more material, um, and some of it might be blood, but you do get more more of the actual tissue. Uh, the question is, it ultimately doesn't make a difference to your you know to your patient, um, and and that that's what we didn't know. Um, we we do seem to get a bit more blood, and that might be an issue in particular if you're using a rapid on-site cytology, for example, um, where it might be a little bit more difficult for your 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 cytologist to uh, to help out with the case if it's if it's a very bloody specimen but ultimately for the for the final diagnosis um, you do get more tissue with these needles uh, and again the question is 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 that relevant to your to clinical decision making Gotcha. So, Dr. Romatowski, let's pull you into uh, the discussion here um, you performed the study what were your aims and your objectives yeah, so um, our aim was to compare the uh, the Flex 19 uh, EBUS needle to the standard 21-gauge uh, and 22-gauge uh, EBUS needles in patients that were undergoing bronchoscopy with EBUS TNA, TBNA uh, for a pre-procedure diagnosis of mediastinal lymphadenopathy, not yet diagnosed, uh, suspected sarcoidosis, and suspected uh, lymphoma. And we chose these, um, you know, as Dr. Tremblay was mentioning, uh, because, you know, these are the areas where, where uh, EBUS yields are not as high. Um, and so we investigated these with co-primary endpoints of diagnostic yield for the EBUS procedure, as well as sensitivity for a diagnosis of sarcoidosis and lymphoma. So essentially, we were looking at cases where lung cancer or another solid organ tumor, aside, you know, aside from lymphoma, was not the primary uh, diagnostic uh, consideration pre-procedure. Uh, we looked at a number of secondary endpoints as well including uh, complications as well as the ability of the procedure to subtype lymphoma and whether or not any additional procedures uh, were required prior to initiating lymphoma treatment in the case of a confirmed diagnosis of lymphoma. And why did you decide to exclude those patients um, with the first concern was lung cancer? Why did you focus specifically on sarcoidosis, lymphoma, and mediastinal adenopathy, not otherwise uh, specified? 
The main reason um, for that really builds on what Dr. Trombley was uh, discussing earlier. You know, the performance of, of EBUS uh, for uh, lymphadenopathy due to lung cancer and other solid tumors is, is excellent with uh, the 21 and the 22 gauge needles. Reported sensitivities range from 92 to 95 uh, percent, whereas uh, for sarcoidosis and lymphoma, they're substantially lower. Um, a recent meta-analysis for sarcoidosis uh, reported a sensitivity of approximately 83%. So we felt that this might be an area where um, the 19-gauge uh, needle would have an advantage. Great. So let's jump into uh, your study method, uh, Dr. Matowski. Uh, this appeared to be a retrospective analysis of a data space um, for patients who underwent EBUS tBNA. Maybe you could give our uh, audience uh, further details about your study methods. Absolutely, and I'd actually like Dr. Tremblay to introduce the uh, database itself and, and speak a little bit about that. Yes, Perfect, uh, Dr. Tremblay. Sure, sure. So, so we, we used um, a, a database that we set up a few years ago called the Scope Database, um, and the Scope Database is a, a Stather Canadian uh, Outcomes uh, of uh, Procedures uh, database, and it, it's uh, it's named in honor of our, our friend and colleague, Dr. David Stather, who passed away uh, eight years ago now. Can't believe it's been so long already. Um, who, uh, Dave was an interventional uh, respirologist, pulmonologist who, who who did a lot of research work in, in uh, EBUS in particular, and including procedure databases and and a lot of studies on uh, uh, procedural training. Um, so we uh, we named the databases as an honors in his honor. Um, and it's it's not just an EBUS database; it's it's got other aspects to it. And we're just starting to um, to do some some studies uh, with the data. It involves multiple universities and and uh, uh, proceduralists uh, across the country in Canada. Um, so we're quite uh, excited to, to to see some of the the analysis start to come out uh, of this database. And um, yeah, so this is uh, this this is a bit of the background of where this data is coming from. And then in terms of um, what time period uh, that this database covers, um, which centers are involved, um, whether it's all patients at these centers, maybe you could give us more details on that, uh, Dr. Tremblay? Right. So, so the database has several modules and individual participants have to decide if they're going to participate in a module or not. And, and if they do, then they have to enter all cases that fit the criteria for that module. So, for example, one of the module would be a benign airway stenosis treatment. Um, so, so if you do that, then you would have to enter all your therapeutic procedures for benign airway stenosis. Um, but some some operators might say, "Well, I don't do enough of that, or I don't do any of those, so I, I'm not going to enter that." So, so if you're in, a, you're either in or out each specific module, but then you enter all of your procedures uh, related to to that module. And then what time period did you uh, collect the data over? Uh, so, um, you have that, Nick? You know, have that? Yeah, absolutely. So, so in terms of, you know, the detailed methodology, so, we, you know, we collected all cases using the 19, uh, 21 gauge and 22 gauge needles for an indication of sarcoidosis, lymphoma, mediastinal lymphadenopathy from the database from 2017 to 2020. Um, and so once we had those cases, uh, collected, we divided them into two groups, um, and they consisted of a group where the procedure was performed with the flex 19 gauge needle, and one with both 21 and 22 gauge needles. And of that, um, a larger number were performed with the 21 gauge needle. 
We excluded any procedures where more than one gauge of needle were used. And the reason that we included both the 21-gauge and the 22-gauge needles in a single group to compare uh, to the 19-gauge needle um, was that previous studies have not consistently found a difference in yield between the 21-gauge and the uh, the 22-gauge needle. And together, you know, these constitute the most common needles um, that are used in practice. Um, And our institution, uh, in particular, uses the 21-gauge as its standard needle. So uh, after identifying the cases and uh, cohorting them into the two groups, one for the 19, one for the 21 and 22 gauge needles. We used a propensity score analysis, um, and this is where our study is unique compared to what's previously been studied comparing the 19 gauge to other gauge needles. And, you know, just briefly, propensity score analysis uses a single score, the propensity score, to estimate the propensity um, of that particular intervention uh, being selected. And so in our case, that's the utilization of the uh, 19 gauge EBIS needle. And this score is defined as the probability that a subject is going to receive um, that intervention based on measured covariates. And so once the score is applied to all cases, uh, the cases are matched. Um, and they can be matched in, in a ratio of one-to-one or in any ratio that the investigator selects, provided there's enough cases. Now, we had a lot more um, uh, 21 and 22-gauge cases than 19, so we selected a two-to-one ratio, two cases uh, in the 21-22-gauge group for every one 19-gauge uh, case. Um, and so... Um, You know, the first step in a propensity score analysis is to perform logistic regression to determine which factors predict the selection of your intervention, in our case, the 19-gauge needle. Um, And in our case, we used uh, pre-procedure diagnosis, lymph node station sampled, maximum lymph node size, the number of targets sampled, uh, the presence of rapid on-site evaluation, whether or not a trainee was present, um, the operator themselves, uh, patient age and sex, um, and these these form the basis of the uh, propensity score. So, you know, once once that's done, um, and the matching process takes place, um, there's different things. There's different parameters that can be selected. So, we used a random uh, matching without uh, replacement technique using a caliper of 0.1, and this means that the sequence of cases being matched was random. And to be considered a potential match for a case, uh, the propensity score of the two cases had to be within 0.1 of each other. And that once a case had been matched to another case, it was unavailable to be matched again. Um, And so this process is repeated until every 19-gauge EBUS case had two matches from the 21- and 22-gauge group. Um, and so ultimately what, what you end up with is two cohorts which are similarly, similarly matched in terms of the covariance, the covariates that have been identified as uh, significant by logistic regression. And the main reason that we chose this is that this is a way to reduce selection bias, uh, which is an important issue um, with these two interventions um, because, you know, in our experience, typically, you know, a 19-gauge needle is selected for a reason. It's not selected at random, and and um, certainly that can in- the, the types of cases you're using it for can influence your diagnostic yield. So you mentioned a really important issue, that of selection bias, uh, Dr. Matowski. Um, and are you able to comment on 
whether uh, certain operators uh, had a preferential use for 19 gauge versus 21 and 22 gauge, and also um, the, the number of uh, needle passes uh, that were performed uh, per operator and the number of agitations uh, per pass, because uh, that, that would obviously affect your diagnostic yield. That's a, a very good point that you've raised, and it's a very important uh, limitation to our study. Um, and it's a limit, and, and you know, you kind of touched on a limitation to all propensity score uh, analysis. Um, and that's, I, I guess, the first thing is that you know you can only control for for measured covariates. So there may be factors that that aren't controlled for that that still introduce uh, bias. And uh, needle passes is an important one. Um, that was not that is not something that's been recorded uh, in scope, and so that's not something that's controlled for. Um, and um, in terms of uh, operator, I don't. We didn't report it, uh, but I don't believe that operator uh, ended up being uh, one of the um, significant uh, influences on on the propensity score. I don't think that made it in. Okay. And uh, Dr. Trembler, any other factors um, in the study methods that you definitely want our audience to be aware of before we move on to the findings? Right. I mean, and not touching on those points, I would say, I mean, the, we, we had uh, a relatively large number of operators uh, participating. And, and I think it was fairly standard that um, uh, the minority of cases for each operator was with the 19 gauge, meaning that th there wasn't any operator that routinely used the 19 for all their cases. So I think most of us uh, used it uh, selectively. Um, and that's why we try to adjust it, uh, you know, in, in, with the propensity match to, to try to make the, the cases as, as close as possible. But it, 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 while it's better than simply retroactively looking at um, um, uh, the two groups uh, and then making adjustments uh, afterwards um, it, it does not it, it, it is still not as ideal as doing a, a prospective randomized trial it's it's um, it, 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 it's an adjustment but it doesn't replace uh, formal randomization uh, in a prospective study which which would be the ideal way to, to do this uh, in the future yeah, and you mentioned the alternative methods of getting to this question of which needle is better. And other studies have, as you said, done a prospective trial. Um, other studies have also had the same operator work on the same lesion, and what they would do is do the 19-gauge first and then the 21 and 22-gauge, and then on a different patient, start with the 21 and 22 and then move on to the 19. And that would allow standardization of both the operator and ensure that they're targeting the same lesion. Um, why were you unable to perform that study in this situation, Dr. Tremblay? Yeah, that would that would certainly be possible to do this prospectively. Um, uh, <laughs> so there's no reason we we couldn't have done that. Obviously, we couldn't have done that through through the the scope data set, which is you know by by na by its own nature uh, a retrospective. Uh, data set. Although you know we did we did build it with with these questions in mind uh, going forward, it is it is still a retrospective study. But for sure, there are there are different ways to go um, uh, perspective, um, and uh, either doing the same, uh, the, you know, the, the same node with two with two different uh, needles and and comparing or or just uh, outright randomizing the individuals. Uh, but again, doing that prospectively, you know, there there's an expense to that because we'd be using a lot more 19 gauge needles 
um, in those cases, which, as I mentioned, is expensive. So we, it's a bit more, a bit more involved to to get to such a study funded and and operated. We can't do that within our clinical systems, um, you know, without additional funds. So, so that that'd be the main uh, logistical reason that that uh, we we haven't done that. Okay, great. So, uh, Dr. Romatowski, let's jump into your primary findings. Uh, what were they, and how did you interpret them? Absolutely. So, um, our propensity, once we had our, um, um, our uh, propensity-matched groups, um, we had uh, 137 patients, which uh, had 312 biopsy targets in the 19-gauge uh, group, and 274 patients with 631 targets in the 21 and 22-gauge group. And in terms of our primary outpoints, the diagnostic yield for the procedure in the 19-gauge group was uh, 78.1%. And 70.8% in the 21-22 uh, gauge group, and so although this favored the 19 gauge, the 19 gauge needle, this was not uh, statistically uh, significant. Um, with respect to sarcoidosis, the sensitivity was uh, 95.2% in the 19 gauge group and 96.2% uh, in the 21-22 uh, gauge group, and this was not significantly different either. Uh, and in terms of lymphoma, our numbers were quite small. Um, in the 19-gauge group, 10 of 13 procedures were, di- were um, able to diagnose lymphoma, which is, which is fairly high, 76.9%. And in the 21-22-gauge group, um, it was 12 out of 12, so 100%. And so although this actually favors the smaller gauge needles, the 21 and 22, uh, this was not significant with a p-value of uh, 0.08. So, you know, I think that the take-home point um, is that we did not identify a difference in terms of diagnostic yield, um, sensitivity for a diagnosis of, sarc- of sarcoidosis, or uh, sensitivity for a diagnosis of lymphoma between the, 19, the Flex 19-gauge needle and the 21-22-gauge needles. Um, and, you know, there were some additional results that, that I found um, surprising. And, and, you know, I'd like Dr. Tremblay uh, to weigh in on this as well. But for me, um, the sensitivity for a diagnosis of lymphoma with either needle was, was surprising to me, acknowledging that our numbers are quite small. You know, um, the gestalt that I've developed uh, regarding EBUS and lymphoma in our, in our institution, at least, is that it's actually quite challenging to secure a diagnosis with, with EBUS that leads to treatment. Um, you know, and, and I guess it, it's also worth mentioning that despite the reasonably high uh, diagnostic yield that we observed, about a, approximately one-third of those cases did require another procedure um, prior to starting treatment. And you know, somewhat related to that, the ability to subtype lymphoma was, was in the 50% range, which is consistent with what's been uh, reported in the literature uh, previously. And so, you know, my interpretation, at least of that portion of the data, is that, that EBUS uh, with either needle is still a, is a very good uh, initial investigation for mediastinal uh, lymphadenopathy not, like, not yet diagnosed. And, and that still holds true if differential if the uh, if lymphoma is in the differential diagnosis, um, but if the underlying diagnosis is lymphoma, EBUS alone may not be significant uh, or sorry sufficient enough uh, to move forward with treatment. 
And Dr. Tremblay, uh, you, you, your um, analysis of the primary findings and your interpretation. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I agree with with Nick. I think I think we. we we, we can see that EBUS overall, you know, has very high diagnostic yield, in particular for sarcoid. I, th- I think, you know, we've been doing this for, for many years now in Calgary. So I think both the operators and, and probably more importantly, our, our cytopathologists are, are so used to seeing these samples that um, our, our diagnostic yield for sarcoidosis is better than it was when we started, uh, you know, in 2005, uh, way back then. So, so, so we, we, we've improved over time as, as a team for, for things like sarcoid. And, and for lymphoma, I agree as well. Well, you know, you know, the lymphomas aren't that common, right? They they are an important part of our practice, but they're not that common. So I think EBUS is always, almost always, the good, the best first step. We can do it quickly; it's safe, Um, and most of the time we do get an answer that it is a lymphoma. But not always do we have all of the information needed by our uh, hematologist colleague to start treatment. So it may be that you need additional samples after that, but that's okay. You know, um, uh, most of the time you won't uh, because you've made a diagnosis of a small cell or a sarcoma or, uh, sorry, a sarcoidosis or, or some other entity. So, um, so yeah, we, we, were, we were impressed overall with, with the diagnostic yields uh, in, in both of those conditions. And, you know, to, to some degree, it makes it harder to prove uh, superiority of the 19 gauge. Um, you know, if, if you want to do a prospective randomized trial for, for a 5% improvement in yield, you, you're going to need a thousand patients in your trial. So again, that's, that's the daunting part of, of doing these studies for, you know, fairly small improvements in diagnostic yield is there, they, they actually are massive undertakings and, uh, you know, people don't necessarily have the appetite to, to put the effort behind, behind, uh, doing a large trial like that for, for, for what, what would be a fairly small incremental yield in your, in your practice. And then, uh, what would you comment? And I think you mentioned this in your limitations. Um, uh, the the operator uh, the decision to use the nineteen gauge versus twenty one versus twenty two gauge. You alluded to the issue of cost um, that the nineteen gauge needles are a lot more expensive, and maybe that limited providers on using those. Um, do you think it's possible that if they had uh, more readily available funds, uh, that they perform these? 19-gauge, um, uh, the procedures with the 19-gauge needles more often, that you would have had different results? Dr. Tremblay? Well, we, I think if we had a, a bigger sample size, maybe we would have seen these smaller differences between the groups, so, so that would be helpful. And, and, and as this, the database continues to grow, we, we eventually will rerun the analysis. This, this data set was drawn, uh, I believe it was July 1st, 2020, so we already have almost two, two, two additional years of data, so you know, maybe in 2023 we'll have a look again and see um, uh, with, with more, more sample size, can we actually see these smaller differences. Um, but, um, you know, people are still using the needles, um, the 19 gauge. I still use it occasionally. Um, again, I, I don't have a really good um, s- clinical scenario where I would say I would always use it. You know, perhaps the exception would be if I'm r- really highly suspecting lymphoma, I must say I'm still leaning towards using the 19 gauge device, even though, you know, our study, w- you know, didn't support that. Um, and, and hopefully we'll have other groups reporting on, on that as well to, to try to make that decision, um, you know, to, to make that clearer for us. When, when, what, you know, is there a clinical scenario where we should really be using the 19 gauge as our, as our first, uh, uh, first needle? Um, you know, other times that I probably often use it would be if it's a redo 
procedure for what for whatever reason either um, the first one was non-diagnostic or wasn't enough tissue for for molecular pathology for lung cancer for example uh, i must say on the second procedure i might lean towards using the 19 gauge but but as you know these are very, fairly rare procedures that we have to redo them in the first place so um, um, you know, it's not, it's not a common thing that we do. It's not an everyday, an everyday procedure. That's for sure. And then as a proceduralist, um, the, the, the way you set up your study is different from, uh, an alternative way that you could have set it up. Um, if you had set it up, a lot of procedures would ask the question, you know, if I have one patient in front of me and I've got a node, which needle would be better, the 19 gauge versus the 22 gauge? And if you were to go ahead and do a study that looked at 19 versus 21 in the same patient, that, that would maybe answer the question uh, the way that a lot of people would like it to be answered. Whereas if you use a retrospective analysis of a database, you do have this issue, as you had already alluded to, of selection bias, of trying to factor in whether it's the proceduralist, um, the selection of the needle, the number of passes, um, there's almost a lack of standardization in a retrospective analysis. And a lot of people may say, you know what, that's an issue with the study. And while it doesn't show any difference, um, those limitations limit the generalizability of the study. Uh, what would your response to that be, Dr. Tremblay? You know, I, I agree. I mean, there, there's limitation to, to retrospectives in particular. And, and as I alluded to, to before, the, the propensity matching only addresses that uh, in part. Um, so ideally, we'd, we'd need a perspective study with, with uh, either an internal control, as you mentioned, or, or outright randomization. And, and right now, there's a couple of small perspective studies. That I believe there's only one that actually randomized, but you know, they were looking at, um, you know, I believe, about 50 patients. So just, just not the sample size. And, and, and that's really the question is, is, is I'm not, but I, I'm not, I don't under, I don't believe anyone's currently under undertaking such a, a study that would have like have to have you know almost 500 patients per group. Um, again, you can you can reduce that somewhat with um, an internal control, as you alluded to. But they're still fairly large undertakings, and I think there's value in doing that. I just don't know if anyone's taking that on at this point. Um, but that would be ideal for sure in terms of uh, of, of of really cementing where is, is there a specific role for that needle um, uh, in in, in a a particular subgroup of patients. I agree. And Dr. Matowski, we've alluded to a number of the limitations of your study. What other limitations have we not covered as yet? Mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, we've, we've spoke about the most important ones, um, you know, that are inherent to any, um, any propensity score analysis, you know, mainly that you can only control for so many uh, covariates and there's going to be unmeasured ones that are still going to introduce uh, bias. And we talked about, you know, some examples of those. Um, there are some other ones, you know, for a diagnosis of sarcoidosis, uh, we used follow-up by a, a clinician as the gold standard uh, follow-up at 30 days. Um, and so it's possible that some of these pa some patients with a final diagnosis of, of sarcoidosis may have actually had alternative diagnoses. Um, you know, evaluation with mediastinoscopy would, would give a more accurate assessment of the final diagnosis, but this is, this is rarely indicated. So that's, that's uh, one limitation. And, you know, I think that it, it's come up... Um, several times the importance of, of sample size. And while, you know, for a bronchoscopic study, our sample size is significant, um, you know, and I believe Dr. Tremblay mentioned this, is our study was still underpowered to detect a small but potentially uh, clinically significant difference in performance, uh, particularly in, in the subgroups uh, such as lymphoma. 
and I, you know, I think that that one more limitation is that um, uh, specific to lymphoma is, you know, there may be difference differences in um, pathologists' uh, um, confidence to make a diagnosis based on a fine needle aspirate. Um, rather than uh, another biopsy modality, such as a core biopsy or an excisional biopsy. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, the, 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 most pathologists would want that core biopsy. Um, and then I, I want to turn our attention to um, the utility of these needles in lung cancer. Your study focused on um, sarcoidosis, lymphoma, and uh, non-lung cancer cases mostly. So the question that a lot of uh, bronchoscopists and uh, pulmonologists will be asking is, um, uh, how would the, the 19 gauge versus the 21 and 22 gauge affect the diagnosis of lung cancer. And when it comes to lung cancer, it's not just knowing that it is cancer, that it's uh, adeno versus squamous, but also the molecular profiling, having enough tissue to make uh, to get to that decision with the pathologist. Um, I know based on your database, you're looking at this in the future. Maybe you could share um, what your planned study is and uh, uh, anything that our audience should be looking out for. Uh, Dr. Tremblay? Yes, and and um, as as that nineteen gauge needle was being developed, you know, in addition to sarcoid and lymphoma, you know, that was really the third uh, box that we had that of of where we think uh, that needle, you know, could could have a, a good, you know great impact was in in that uh, molecular analysis piece for lung cancer. Um, so so we we have been collecting uh, that information as part of the scope database for for EBUS procedures as well. So we and, and then you know by 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 its nature, some of those were also done with a nineteen gauge. So um, we're actually analyzing uh, the, the entire data set now for for uh, those molecular outcomes, um, and then one of the things we're we're looking at is uh, for the cases that had 19 gauge, um, are, are the results better? Um, it, it's it, there's a bit of the similar problem is that uh, you know especially for uh, EGFR you know the basic EGFR. Um, you know, EBUS is so good. You know, standard EBUS is so good. So to show a difference, um, uh, f- uh, you know, to an incremental improvement on a test that's already excellent is very challenging. Um, so, so that, so, that, but it is something we're looking at. And um, um, even even though it's very very good, it's not perfect. So perhaps there is a bit of room there. But I think we're going to face a similar similar uh, issue as we did here. Is that um, it, it's hard to show that incremental benefit. And again, uh, which is why I think we're we're still using this device for redo procedures where you did, didn't get it the first time for some reason. Um, and, and you just want to try everything that you can. Um, but yeah, so hopefully hopefully we'll have some of that, that uh, data coming out soon as well. And, and the other thing that this the on on that part is that it's changing. You know, we're 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 moving to next gen type sequencing here as well. And um, you know, so our the previous results we have uh, still applicable. So anyway, there's there's lots of ongoing work to do on this as uh, as the field evolves, uh, sometimes quicker than uh, than than our data. Yeah, we definitely need to keep up and with the needs of uh, both our patients and um, the treatment modalities. Um, Dr. Matowski and Dr. Tremler, you've been very generous with your time. And as we draw to the end of this podcast, um, I do want to give each of you the opportunity to share with our audience any concluding remarks or also um, anything that we haven't covered in this podcast that you definitely want the audience to be aware of. Um, I'll start off with Dr. Tremblay and uh, give Dr. Matowski the final word. Dr. Yeah, Tremblay? 
I was going to make, thank you. I was going to make a few, a few tips on how to use the needle because there are, there are some differences with that needle. Um, it is actually more flexible than, than the standard needle, which, which is a bit counterintuitive because it's bigger, but that's because it's made of nitinol. So it's more flexible. And sometimes that's useful when, when we target certain lymph nodes like 10L or, or even 4L. Um, but it, but it adds uh, some difficulties. Um, so, so I always say this is an advanced needle. It's probably not for people starting out with eBus, but if you have experience with eBus, then then it's okay. Um, a few a few quick things to think about. So, one, the stylet must be in. Um, some people like to remove the stylet. It has to be in. The needle is too soft to, to puncture without the stylet in. The, the column strength, as it's called, is not good enough. So you can you can damage the needle. Um, and for for the same reason, you have to be careful not extending the sheet too far out of the scope. And you, and you do have to look at where the cartilages are. We can get a little sloppy with a standard needle. We just, we just uh, extend it. But you really have to make sure that you're between the cartilages with this needle or else you, 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 you risk bending the needle and, and even breaking it. Um, so it's an important points to think about. And then once you're in, you have to make sure that you follow the needle with your ultrasound because it has a tendency, again, to curve outside of your field of view. And you end up uh, potentially penetrating things that you didn't want to penetrate with the needle. So always make sure you keep it in your ultrasound sound uh, field of view uh, to, to ensure um, uh, that you're not uh, somewhere you, where you don't want to be. Um, and then the final thing would be most of the studies, you know, by nature have looked at fairly large lymph nodes for this. This is probably not your staging needle when you're doing, you know, five or eight millimeter lymph nodes for lung cancer staging. That's probably not the best uh, device. You know, um, the, the smaller needles there uh, from a technical standpoint, at least, are probably the way to go. So just a few tips on on how to use this uh, this device. Yeah, I appreciate those tips. Uh, they're very, very useful. Um, and then any concluding remarks, uh, Dr. Tremblay? No, I, I'll uh, leave it to Dr. Romatowski to, to close if he has any other, other comments. Um, yeah, you know, um, I, I think the take-home point is that though our, our study has uh, limitations, it's, it's another piece of evidence that has, has failed to identify a significant difference um, in terms of diagnostic yield uh, using the 19-gauge needle, and that, you know, absolutely more studies are needed to find out where, where exactly uh, lies the strength of, of using this, this uh, device. And the only, thing I, the only other thing I'd like to do is thank Dr. Tremblay for uh, conceiving the study and um, providing me with um, tremendous guidance and assistance in, in uh, writing the paper, as well as thank all the other authors um, who contributed cases and, and contributed to uh, writing the paper. Yeah, and definitely applaud Dr. Tremblay for mentorship, and we definitely need to thank all our mentors for ensuring that uh, they develop uh, mentees who, who take up the mantle and uh, pursue um, uh, the pulmonology career and the bronchoscopy career. Um, a very big thank you to Drs. Ramatowski and Dr. Tremblay for a great conversation, and a big thank you to our chess community for joining us. I'm Dominic Pepper, and this is a chess podcast. <laughs>